If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the mid 19th century, a team of explorers set off in search of an elusive goal the source of the River Nile. Set against a backdrop of imperial expansion into Africa, the expedition was led by Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak, two men who should have been great partners but became bitter rivals. I spoke to Candice Millard about her new book, River of the Gods, which tells the story of Burton and Speak's gruelling, dangerous journey and the guide who made it all possible, Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Your new book tells the story of a remarkable expedition in the mid-19th century to find the source of the River Nile. So before we launch into the story of the expedition itself and some of the colourful cast of characters who who took on that gruelling quest... Could you help us out with a bit of backdrop to this story? So why were people so keen to find the mouth of the Nile? And why, by the mid-19th century, had no one succeeded yet? So this is a story that had been going on for thousands of years. People have been fascinated and, and frustrated by trying to find the source of the Nile. Obviously, the Nile is the longest and most storied river in the world. It has brought life to Egypt, bringing us the one of the oldest 
and most fascinating civilizations in history. But where did it begin? And this is a question, again, that had been frustrating ancient historians, philosophers, Egyptian kings for thousands of years. The problem was, as many people do, if you try to find the source of a river, you begin at the end, right? And so you think, okay, we know where it pours out into the Mediterranean, so let's start there and let's go south into Africa. Um, The problem is that they very quickly and again and again and again hit something called the Sud, S-U-D-D, which is basically a giant swamp. And nobody but nobody could get past it. And so it would frustrate them for years. Until the mid-1800s, when the Royal Geographical Society, you know, the the most prominent and powerful and respected scientific society in the UK, um, decided, okay, we're going to send people to figure this out. And they thought that, okay, there's probably a huge lake, one huge lake in the middle of Africa in the, in the interior. So instead of starting from the from the north and going south, we're going to start on the eastern coast of Africa, well below the equator, and head inland and see if we can find it. And so by the 19th century, what was going on in Africa at this time? So we're talking about the mid-19th century, this expedition that you look at in your book. Right. What were the factors that were really shaping the continent at this time? So at that time, there were obviously a lot of very, very powerful African kingdoms at that time. That um, Arabs had been in Africa for quite a while. Um, so there were a number of inland roads, so to speak, um, paths that you could follow for trade, mostly for ivory, and then obviously for enslaved people as well. Um, and so there were many sophisticated, powerful African kingdoms. But Europe... And um, Britain was very interested in Africa for all of its resources and for land and the power that it represented. And so I think that, especially, you know, I worked at National Geographic magazine for a number of years. And so I was steeped in stories about Africa, steeped in stories about exploration. And I always found it fascinating. And obviously thinking these people were incredibly brave. And they were. All of that is true. And it added to our understanding of Africa. But it wasn't just, obviously, about exploration. It was about colonization. They wanted to take that land. And so everyone is, it's a scramble for Africa, right? Everybody is trying to get there first, trying to map it out and stake their flag. So can you introduce us really to the expedition that you follow, led by Burton and Speak? Who were they and what were their aims? So Richard Francis Burton was one of these sort of once-in-a-century characters that you rarely, rarely come across. He was um, absolutely brilliant. You know, he wrote dozens of books about his travels, but also translations and poetry and essays. He was already a very accomplished explorer. He had been the first Englishman to enter Mecca disguised as a Muslim. Um, he He studied every religion. Religion, respected none. Um, he also was an unbelievable linguist. He spoke more than 25 different languages, plus another dozen or so dialects. But what was also interesting about him is that no matter what he achieved, he was always considered an outsider in his home country, right? He, his, his, his parents were British, and he had been born in Devon, but he had been raised in Europe. He had moved 
13 times before his 18th birthday. He had moved from Greece to Italy to France, and he had just picked up languages and cultures along the way. Um, and he also didn't look particularly British in the, in the eyes of most of his countrymen. You know, he had this black hair and these sort of mesmerizing eyes. There's an amazing quote in your book, which I love, which somebody described him as having the jaw of a devil and the brow of a god. That's right. So he was pretty charismatic <laughs> yeah, then. He was, he was, and he was said to have used these sort of mesmerizing eyes to hypnotize women, you know, and <laughs> been very successful in that way. And none other than Bram Stoker was fascinated him. Bram Stoker, who would go on to write Dracula, met met Burton before he wrote Dracula and was he was like he was he's incredible he's like steel he'd go through you like a sword and he was especially interested in his teeth and he talked about when when Burton would speak that his his canine would gleam like a dagger so I don't know you tell me I think that it's pretty clear <laughs> so we have Burton on the one hand that's right and then the other key figure or one of the other key figures in this story is Speak. Mm -hmm. Tell us about him because we have two men which stand in stark contrast, don't they, to each other here? Exactly. That's exactly right. So John Hanning Speak was absolutely Burton's uh, complete opposite in almost every way. And he was sort of what Britons expected their heroes to be at that time. So he was blonde and blue-eyed. He had been born into the aristocracy. He was um, an officer in the British Army. And he his obsession was hunting. He loved to hunt. And so he had taken a leave of absence from the, he was in the in India in the military and wanted to go to Africa um, to hunt. So he was trying, he wanted to start a natural history museum in his sort of ancestral home. Um, and so that's when he met Burton. He met Burton in Aden when Burton was about to start off for Somaliland on his first trip to try to find the source of the Nile. So there is another third figure who I think is the, is the key figure in your book, really, who traditionally hasn't received as much attention as Burton and Speak, and that's um, Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Can you introduce us to him and why you wanted to foreground his story in this expedition? You're right. Bombay is an inc incredibly important part of this story. And really, I, I couldn't have and would not have wanted to tell the story um, without him. So um, Bombay was born into um, in a small village in East Africa. He was Yao, but he was uh, kidnapped and enslaved when he was just a child. He was taken to Zanzibar, where he was sold for cloth, and then taken to Western India, where he was enslaved for about 20 years. Um, after the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom, and he made his way back to East Africa. And that's where he met Burton and Speak. Um, What's fascinating, among the many things that's fascinating to me about Bombay, is that he he managed to sort of come out of this staggering tragedy, not with bitterness, but with unbelievable kindness. You know, he ended up being in many, many different expeditions, and all of these explorers wrote about him. And you come away from their writings knowing about Bombay is that he was always trustworthy. He was always reliable. He was really kind of the linchpin of these expeditions. Everybody relied on him. And he would go on to achieve what Burton and Speak could not with all of their advantages and ambition. Um, he would become one of the um, most accomplished guides and explorers in the, in the history of African exploration. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So in a practical sense, what kind of roles did guides like um, Bombay take on on these kinds of expeditions? Um, why did people like Burton and Speak rely on them? These expeditions would not have been possible. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, I think anybody could see that um, without the people who live there and who knew the land. And obviously, they had guides all along the way. You know, you're, you're covering thousands of miles of completely unmapped territory. So you need people who live in those in those regions, but you need sort of a caravan leader, right? Somebody who can, can um, lead you there, can introduce you to people, can help you to negotiate. I mean, um, Bombay and many like him, and they were porters, they were translators, they were negotiators, they were nurses. Um, it just was absolutely essential. And the Every explorer knew it, but at home, sort of the armchair geographers, right, um, who had never been anywhere near Africa, but would happy to tell you all about it, um, you know, considered these people sort of native um, sources, and they didn't really trust them. And so the explorers knew that. They knew, first of all, that as soon as they got there, that was the first thing that they had to do. They had to find hundreds of men to help them um, make it to these places, but also they had to find the very knowledgeable people. But they also knew they had to kind of hide that, right? And so they would take this information and they would sort of turn it into, this is what I found. And that is really important, I think, to mention, isn't it? Because when we say, you know, this expedition of Burton and Speak, it wasn't two or three men. It was like no, you say, hundreds. many, many hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> yes, as many as they could get. They never had enough. 
So I wonder if we could talk in a bit more detail about the journey that they went on now. So let's talk first about terrain. What kind of landscapes were they tackling here? And what were some of the main challenges um, that those landscapes brought? I mean, any landscape that you can imagine, because again, so they're starting, they start in Zanzibar and then they um, take boats over to the, um, to what is today mainland Tanzania. And then they head out and they're, again, they're hiring as many porters as they can. They're, they're buying as many donkeys as they can. And they're going through forests. They're going through deserts. They're going through grasslands. They're trying to find food. <laughs> they're trying to not be killed. I mean, obviously, again, and, you know, I think that we're used to reading these accounts from the perspective of the European explorers or British explorers going in and thinking, oh, these places are super, super dangerous. But if you think about it from the perspective of the people who live there, I mean, these people were coming uninvited, right? And were ultimately were a danger to them and also bringing a lot of supplies that they could have used. And so there was always a potential for conflict um, and for attack. Um, and that did happen actually to um, Burton and Speed on their first sort of ill-fated, short-lived expedition when they were in Somaliland. Um, Before they had even started, they were attacked one night. Um, One man was killed. One man from their expedition was killed. Speak was kidnapped and stabbed 11 times. It's just astonishing he survived it. And Burton had a javelin thrust through his jaw from cheek to cheek. It was just sticking out from cheek for like hours. And it gave him this great scar down his face that made him seem even more kind of dangerous and suspicious. And and it ended their expedition, obviously, right there. And then they had to start um, all over again. So these kinds of things could happen all the time. The biggest danger was disease, um, which they were sick literally all the time. And and again, we have to think in terms of what it was like for them walking and using donkeys for these thousands of miles. So they um, they were there for years. You know, this was this wasn't like a month in and out. They were it was like almost two years. And Burton had such severe malaria at one point that he was paralyzed. He could not walk for almost a year. So again, you think about how important are these um, Africans who helped? I mean, they carried him for a lot of the way. He was literally being being carried. Um, both men had horrible eye diseases where they were blinded for months at a time. Um, poor Speak, one night there was a storm and it, and it blew down his tent. And so to try to erect his tent, he lit a candle and it attracted this horde of beetles. And so his tent was just filled with hundreds of beetles. And he was like desperately, you know, trying to fight them off. Um, He couldn't get rid of them. Finally, out of exhaustion, he lay down to try to sleep. And one of the beetles got in his ear and started digging in deeper and deeper, burrowing its way into his ear. And so he tried, you know, he like tried butter, he tried oil, salt, nothing, nothing could get it out. He just kept burrowing deeper into his ear. So Finally, out of desperation, he took a pen knife and he stabbed it into his ear. Oh. Yeah, and it killed the it killed the beetle, but um, it it deafened him in that ear for the rest the rest of his life. And for and for weeks afterward, like bits of the beetle would come out in his earwax, like a wing or a leg or something. So, I mean, it was this it wasn't an easy trip to say the least. No, not <laughs> easy at all. So no. this sounds incredibly grueling, in many ways <laughs> yes. dangerous, in many ways terrifying. What drove them forward? What motivated them to carry on despite all these obstacles? 
So this was the holy grail of exploration, finding the source of the Nile. And whoever found it would gain fame and power and more opportunity. And again, you know, Burton and Speak were very different men. So so Burton was um, incredibly knowledgeable about as much as he could be. He studied carefully um, African peoples and their cultures and the way they lived. And he was fascinated by the land itself, languages, obviously. Um, and so he he was a true scholar. He was somebody who really loved learning for learning's sake. And so that was a big part of it for him as well. Um, Speak kind of wanted to take a shortcut, right? He didn't have all of that knowledge, but he sure wanted the power and he wanted the fame. And so they um, obviously these two men end up clashing. And how did that clash unfold? What did it mean for the expedition? So Speak always chafed at the idea of being the second in command, and he always wanted to be the leader of the expedition, but Burton obviously was. And Burton was one of these people, again, who's just he's, he just was brilliant, and he's just not aware of the sort of jealousy surrounding him. And I think that we all have seen, you know, whether through literature or through real life, what happens when somebody um, can admire somebody very much, and but that can easily turn to envy, turn to resentment, and turn to, to hatred. And that's what happened with Burton and Speaks. This uh, Speak had this sort of simmering resentment against um, Burton that grew and grew, with Burton being completely clueless about it until um, it came out and really destroyed destroyed them both. So what ultimately happened on the expedition? Was it a success? So what happened is they first, they were trying to make their way to Lake Tanganyika, which is in um, what is today Western Tanzania. Um, it's the, it's, I think, the longest lake in Africa. It's the one of the deepest. And Burton thought and hoped that it was the source of the Nile. They made it there, but he was so sick and all these things had happened. They didn't even have boats by the time they made it there. So they didn't have a chance to completely circumnavigate it. And then they're on their way back to the coast. They had no food, no, no money. You know, they're just trying to make it back alive. And they stop halfway through and they had heard about, because again, they thought at first that there was just one huge lake, but it turns out there are three huge lakes there. And they heard about this other lake that they were told was even larger and it was um, to the north. And Speak is better by this point. And Burton's still very sick and weak. And Speak says, let me take Bombay and a group of people and go see this lake. And he does. And by sort of a twist of fate, that is the Nyanza, what we now know as Lake Victoria. It is the primary source of the Nile. And it's mind-bendingly huge. It's about 26,000 square miles. It's the largest freshwater lake in Africa, the second largest freshwater lake in the world. And Speak gets there and he sees just a, a just a tiny bit of it. In fact, he's in the southern reaches and the and the Nile pours out of the northern reaches of this lake. But he says, this is it. This is the source of the Nile. I know it. He has n- you know, no basis for this. He just feels it, he thinks. So he goes back and he tells Burton, guess what? Great news. I have discovered the source of the Nile. Um, and Burton, I, and to his credit, Burton says, maybe, maybe, I don't know. You know, we need to go back get more funds, get get healthy, and then come back and actually circumnavigate it and see. And, and Speak is deeply offended by this. He cannot believe that Burton doesn't just believe him. So they get back to the coast. Burton's still too ill to go back to England. And Speak says, look, I'm going to go back, but I tell you what, I am, I'm not going to talk to anybody until you 
you can um, join me. So don't worry about it. I'll see you there. Um, but he gets on the boat and he meets this guy named Oliphant, who is sort of a rich kid who kind of is bored, ready to make some trouble. And he starts talking to Speak and he's like, look, you know what? Burton has everything. Burton's famous. Burton's brilliant. Burton's the leader of the expedition. You only have one thing. You're going to get there first. And so Speak, as soon as he gets to London, he goes right to the Royal Geographical Society and he says, I have discovered the source of the Nile. And how did that go down with Burton when Burton <laughs> returned to London? I'm imagining not well. No, <laughs> you are correct. Not well. So he finally gets back and he's shocked. You know, he can't, again, he... I, I just think he's one of these people, he just didn't see it, you know. He he noticed that Speak was kind of grumpy and things like that, you know, um, but he didn't understand the ambition that Speak had. And Speak, very quickly, you know, they both kind of go back to the Royal Geographical Society, say they want to go back, but Burton's not well enough to go back in any time. He still needs to recover. And um, so the Royal Geographical Society says, well, we're going to um, give what little funding we have, we're going to give it to Speak. So now Speak is a commander of the next expedition to go back and find the source of the Nile. And Burton's just left like what happened. And also he feels like, and truly, you know, I mentored Speak, you know, I introduced him to people, I helped him. And now he's completely turned on me. So we have Burton kind of languishing in England. But tell us about Speak and that second expedition. Did it achieve what he wanted it to? To some degree. So he goes back and he takes a man with him um, named James Grant. Um, Grant was um, Scottish and he had they had known each other um, before in India. And um, Grant is exactly the kind of man Speak wants. So Speak doesn't want somebody like himself as a second man, right? He wants somebody who's happy to, you know, take a back seat, happy to let him take credit. And that's what happens again and again on this expedition. And, and, and also the main thing he knows is when I go back, I need Bombay again. So that's the first thing he does. He, he takes Bombay with him and they go directly to the Nyanza and they um, do go to its northern reaches. Um, but again, they, they just, they're, they're sick. They don't have enough funding. They don't have enough time to circumnavigate this enormous lake. Um, so again, he feels like, yes, you know, this has um, definitely proved it. But, you know, this is science and you need a lot, lot more information than that. So he comes back, he sends a telegram when he gets back to Egypt saying, you know, it, it's true. I've discovered this. the Nyanza is the is the source of the Nile. He, he named for the, his British queen, this African lake, uh, Lake Victoria. And so he's, he's celebrated and Burton again is on the outside. So what was the the aftermath of all of this? Burton ends up um, going, he actually came to the United States um, and he's just sort of, he, oh, he, he always felt a huge sense of depression. He would fall into this deep depression after every huge accomplishment. What pulled him out of it is he had another challenge ahead of him. And now he feels like he doesn't have that. So he's, he's, he's kind of flailing around, searching for his next challenge. And Speak then is sort of also shunted aside because he ends up just alienating everybody. He's, you know, he accuses people who have helped him of just terrible things, you know, and, and even the Royal Geographical Society starts to back away from him. What happens is they, um, the Royal Geographical Society is trying to get everybody excited for its next big um, conference that's going to be um, just out in Bath. 
And so they invite all these different speakers. And what's going to be sort of the headline event is sort of the argument about what is the source of the Nile. And they invite Burton and Speak to debate. And again, you know, Burton is this really brash, confident guy with all of the knowledge behind him. He's a riveting speaker. Um, speak, he hates writing. He hates public speaking. He All he knows is he was there and he just feels it in his bone that he's right. And also he's alienated everybody, right? And they haven't seen each other for more than a year. And the day before the debate is scheduled, they see each other for the first time in this debate hall in Bath. And Speak is visibly upset and sort of rushes out. And he goes where he always goes when he needs help, when he needs refuge. What makes him happy is hunting. And his um, uncle had this beautiful estate just outside of Bath called Neston Park. And he goes there to go hunting with his cousin. But his cousin can tell that something's going on. And Speak, you know, is is not only a, a an incredibly experienced hunter and and much more dangerous situations and circumstances than a field in England. But he's also famously careful. He was always extremely careful with his firearms. Um, But but his cousin can tell that he's wrought up, um, he's upset, and he's distracted. And so his cousin kind of stays away from him. And they have um, a guide who's with them, uh, just a gameskeeper. And so his cousin's ahead of him and Speak is walking through and they're hunting and he starts to, Speak starts to climb a low stone wall. And his cousin in front of him hears the gun go off and thinking, oh, he's, he's gotten a partridge. He turns around and he sees Speak falling from that wall. He runs to him and Speak shot himself. And the question is, was it intentional? Was it accidental? Um, It seems almost unimaginable that he could have accidentally um, shot himself. But he was obviously very worried about the debate the next day. So, you know, again, this is 1865. So, you know, we don't have a lot of modern methods of communication. But um, the next day, it's the morning of the debate. Burton's waiting in the hall for the debate to, to take place. And a messenger arrives and gives a message to all the people who are in charge of the of the symposium or the Royal Geographical people. And they kind of pass this message around. And finally, they call Burton in and they tell him that Speak has died. It's an extraordinary end to such a dramatic story. I can see as a historian why you would be drawn to this, because you've got everything here. You know, you've got heroism, you've got danger, adventure, betrayal, tragedy. <laughs> exactly. But You're can right. you tell us a bit about your process of researching this story and uncovering it? Right. So I, I first heard this story when I worked at National Geographic magazine 20 years ago. And I was drawn to it because, again, it's, again, the holy grail of exploration at that time. It's East Africa, which I'm fascinated. I did a story on uh, the kingdom of Aksum in Ethiopia when I was at National Geographic and fell in love with that part of Africa. Um, but also, I was just fascinated, as you said, with the story of these two very, very different men, the story of their friendship, the betrayal of that friendship, and then this unbelievable 
um, ending to the story. It's just like you, you, if you made that up in a novel, nobody would believe it. You know, it's just, that's ridiculous. Um, but so I was always fascinated, um, with it, but it wasn't until I, um, started reading more of their own writings and I learned about Bombay that I realized, okay, this is a story I, I really want to try to tell. And one of the best parts of my job, probably the best part of my job is doing the research, right? I love, I love going to archives. I went to the UK, did a ton of research on London. I went to Neston Park. That wall is still there. That, but in fact, the um, the family still owns. Uh, it's still the same. The Fuller family. It still owns that land and that home. And he gave me a piece of that wall <laughs> that I have in my office now. But obviously, I was mostly looking forward to going back to East Africa. Um, so I was there. I was in Zanzibar, Tanzania. Uganda, and um, obviously it was not nearly as difficult or dangerous as um, Burton and Speaks and Bombay's um, expeditions. But uh, but all you know, things always happen along the way that you're not really expecting. So when I was um, at Lake Tanganyika, but one night I was trying to make it um, to a different bank of the of the lake. And again, these lakes are just huge, 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 and so you feel like you're in an ocean when you're on them. Um, and but there had been a storm that day, and so it was getting darker and darker later and later. And by the time the boat came, because it was coming from that bank that I needed to get to, um, it was it was completely dark. And these are small boats. I mean, they can maybe fit eight to ten people. It's an open wooden boat on again, and the the waters were really really rough still. So it's like you're on a storm tossed sea, and this little open boat. And the waves were so strong that we were literally tipping sideways. And sideways all the way over. And my my husband was with me. He had been a foreign correspondent in Latin America for years. So I like to take him with me on these trips. And at one point I looked at, I mean, I honestly was terrified. And I said, look how far that bank is. If we capsize, there's no way we can swim that far. We won't make it. And he said, don't worry about it. The crocodiles will get us before we get very far. And, it, <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. I mean, it, this this is packed. If you read, especially Speak's description of the, I mean, it's, it's packed with, with crocodiles. So anyway, we, we survived it, but I, I was very, very relieved when we got off that boat. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an extraordinary research trip. Um, I think as a final postscript to our conversation, could you just tell us what happened to Bombay after all of this? So, yeah, it's, it's again, one of these amazing, amazing stories. So Bombay was obviously a Burton and Speaks guy getting them to Lake. They were the first Europeans to Lake Tanganyika, getting Speak to the Nyanza, and then back with Speak and Grant to the Nyanza. But then Henry Morton Stanley goes, and he's the guy who finally confirms that the Nyanza is a principal source. And Bombay was with him and helped him find David Livingston. So, you know, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, that was Bombay. And then with Vernie Levin, Cameron, the explorer Vernie Levitt Cameron, they became the first to cross the entire continent from east to west, sea to sea. So as I said, you know, he he really did more to help map East Africa and much of Africa than any European or British explorer to come to his homeland. That was Candice Millard speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorne. Her book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.